I ask you to turn your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1. You can find that in the Pew Bibles on page 398. Children, here are your questions for this morning. What book teaches us the truth about God and our need to be saved from sin? Two, who is the only one who can save us from our sins? Three, what is trusting in him for salvation called? Four, what word do we use to describe God's free gift of salvation? Five, what does the Latin phrase soli deo gloria mean? Hint, look at the banners in the front of the sanctuary. Nehemiah chapter 1, this is the word of God. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Shislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with a certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there is in the province, uh, sorry, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love for those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. There ends the reading of God's word. I encourage you to keep your Bibles handy. We'll be looking at a number of passages later on in the sermon. Let's pray together. The Lord our God, we do thank you for your word, and whenever your word is read, you have our attention. And Lord, we pray that the word that has just been read would certainly lay upon our hearts. And we pray now that the word preached would have impact as well. 
And so we pray for a special measure of your Holy Spirit to help the preacher and help all of us who will hear this morning. Speak to us, we humbly ask, as we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, with the coming designated celebration, commemoration of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, I always find it the oddest thing that we're celebrating what I understand to be a failure. Usually we celebrate victories. Things like Independence Day, celebrating our independence from another nation, or Juneteenth, where the freedom of slaves is celebrated. Usually we celebrate a victory. Now if you see, if you see reform as a victory, when it doesn't happen, then we can call it a success. But if we think of the reform meaning reform, then the reformation in a sense was a failure. That said, that said, we could call it Independence Day. We could call it Juneteenth, though that wouldn't make sense, but it does have to do with liberation and freedom and the result of the Reformation, though it didn't end up reforming the church that it intended to reform, many souls were saved and set free by the gospel finally getting to the people. Think of the word reform. When I was a teenager, the last place you wanted to find yourself was in reformed school, reform school. Now we call it juvie. But the idea wasn't that you would go and destroy that person or keep them there. The idea was that you would reform this wayward teenager and then set him free so that he could be productive in the world and live a good life. And so we used to have reform schools or you have tax reform where they're trying to make this system better. Basically, reform has to do with taking something that has gone wrong and making it right taking things that are out of whack, and if that works, bringing them back into whack, not creating something new. The Reformation has to do with reforming a church that had gone wildly wrong. In a sense, in the Western world, we could see that the Roman Catholic Church was a monolithic institution that had become extremely corrupt with the religion that was so far from scripture that it actually obscured the gospel itself. The church needed reformation. Maybe this is a bold claim, but I think it's fair to say that reformation is a biblical thing, and true reformation comes from God, even the one we commemorate, even though in certain terms it was not successful. It was successful in this way. The chief end of Reformation is the glory of God. Threefold. The glory of God. The glory of God, the salvation of souls, and the advancement of his kingdom in the hearts of men, women, and children throughout the world. In that sense, it's been very successful. But who needs Reformation? number of things need reformation, but the church needs reformation. You see, we're not talking about a government agency here. 
We're not talking about a political system here. We're, we're talking about something much bigger, far greater. We're talking about the earthly representation of God's kingdom. And because God's people can often be so forgetful that his sacred institution can go awry when it's controlled by the hands of corrupted men. Whenever the church forgets the goodness of God and his faithfulness, they begin to, ne they begin to neglect the good things that he's given us and primarily neglect the word of God. And when you neglect the word of God, you come up with all kinds of things, from bad doctrine to offensive additives, to the point where the good things of God can be utterly obscured. And that's what happened in the church. And so... The church needs reformation, but so does the world around the church because when the church gets it right and acts right, it impacts the world around us. I dare to say that that's one of the fundamental problems in our own country is that the church is not quite getting it right. There are many, many noble and true churches. But so much of the American church is off. Because if all the churches that call themselves Christian churches and all the people that call themselves Christian people were doing what we are supposed to do, if we were constantly reforming ourselves, our country would not be in the moral mess it's in now. And so the way the church goes does impact the culture around us and further the way the church goes will have to do with whether the gospel truly gets out to those who need to be saved. And so the Reformation is for the church and it's for God's world as well in its fallen condition. But what does Reformation look like? The Reformation or Reformation was not novel at the end of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. It wasn't original. In fact, it's fascinating to me how some of the very basics that we associate with the Reformation are all throughout Scripture. The, the monolithic church, the Roman Catholic Church, in the day of the Reformation that we celebrate had become corrupt, it had become big, it had become powerful. It had a lot to do with money, it had things to do with sex, it was fleecing the people, keeping them fearful keeping them ignorant. There are all kinds of elements that were problems in the church. And what needed to rise to the surface are these things that we call the solas. The solas. To write incorrect doctrine, to write incorrect worship, to write incorrect lifestyle and to set people free. And so we have these solas. I always find it somewhat humorous that Reformed people like to put these in Latin, even though one of the basics of the Reformation is to put things in the language that people can understand. Most of us are not Latin scholars. It's a very handy thing to talk about the solas, but they're basically this. 
in English translation, Scripture alone, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, all to God's glory alone. That's what was needed in the time of the Reformation, but that's not where it started. True reform was needed in the church, has always been needed in the church. And behind true reform, or I should say from true reform, comes true revival. And so it always has to do with the movement of the Holy Spirit, and it always has to do with the prayers of God's people. And it always has to do with a return to Scripture, a focus on Christ, faith in the Lord, grace from God, all to God's glory. But we learn this from Bible history. And so now I want us to look at a number of passages in the Old Testament. And so I'll try to take my time as I turn to them. The first one is in Joshua. And I'm not going to read all that I could read about these scenarios in the Old Testament. But I want to follow along chronologically these times of Reformation. I'm not going to have you stand each time I read scripture, as, as some would, based on one verse in the Old Testament. But I do want you to listen and look if you can. The first one is in Joshua. The people of Israel had proven over and over again that they needed to be reformed. They needed to change because they kept grumbling against God, kept embracing false gods, kept going away from God's word, kept not trusting in God, all those bad things that we're familiar with in the Exodus time of Israel. We come to Joshua, pick up in verse 1, chapter 1. And I want you to, to extract from all of these some things that you notice. One thing I'm not going to do is elaborate much on the sins that they were committing, but they all jump right out to you in every passage that we'll read. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success." Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Be not frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. See how central the word of God is in establishing 
the nation of Israel in the Promised Land. Now, turn to the very end of Joshua. The very end of Joshua. Just verses 14 and 15 here. Joshua calling out the people. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if, if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Reformed. Get rid of all the false gods, get rid of all the things that your forefathers embraced, and get it right. Fast forward, and the kings are established in the promised land. And we discover from the time of Joshua all the way to the time of the kings, there are messes and messes. Then we have the kingdom established. Things seem pretty good for a little while with David on the throne and then Solomon but we know better, things get messy once again, and we have this division in Israel. And we have the northern tribes that have no good kings whatsoever, and they're into all kinds of corruption. And then you have Judah that's kind of a mix in the south of some good kings, some very wicked kings. But you have this division among the covenant people of God. Listen to the things that they had to deal with, the kings of reform. Now I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings. 1 Kings. Chapter 15, beginning in verse 11. Simply setting out to prove again and again that reformation of the church is supremely biblical. 1 Kings 15, verse 11. And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David his father had done. He put away the male cult prostitutes out of the land and removed all the idols that his fathers had made. He also removed Maak, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made an abominable image for Asherah, and Asa cut down her image and burned it in the brook Kidron. But the high priests were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days, and he brought into the house of the Lord the sacred gifts of his father and his own sacred gifts, silver and gold and vessels. And so there is reform, and we can elaborate on what Asa did. Now you have to jump ahead to Chronicles to try to stay in chrono chronological order. We'll go back to the Second Kings. Second Chronicles, bear with me, just a few passages here. Second Chronicles 29, under Hezekiah. 29, 3 to 6. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. He brought in the priests and the Levites and assembled them in the square on the east and said to them, Hear me, Levites, now consecrate yourselves and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry out the filth from the holy place. 
For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done what is evil in the sight of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord and turned their backs. Restoring the place of worship. So key to reform is restoring biblical right worship. And they had gone so far away. Verse 35 and 36, same chapter. Besides the great number of burnt offerings, there was the fat of the peace offerings and there were the drink offerings for the burnt offerings. Thus the service of the Lord, service of the house of the Lord was restored and Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced because God had provided for the people for the things came about suddenly. Reform. Jump back to 2 Kings now. Bear with me, this one and one more. 2 Kings chapter 23. Things keep going back into a mess. Things keep needing to be reformed. 23 verses 26 and 27. Still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. Things still weren't right. Due to their sin... Israel would be sacked by the Assyrians. Judah would be sacked by the Babylonians. God always keeps a remnant, and he keeps a remnant in Judah, and they begin to return to Jerusalem, and they start to rebuild the temple. I'm sorry, I did not mean to skip the reforms of Josiah, but it's too late. Uh, You can go back to 2 Kings 22 and 23 also. But tragically... Tragically, the reforms don't stick. People come back into Jerusalem, and that's where we come to Nehemiah. We read chapter 1, now pick up Nehemiah chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one man in the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on the wooden platform that they had made for the purpose And beside him stood Matanah, I'm not going to read all those names. Jump down to verse 5. I did practice them, but I'm not going to read them now. Verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. Lifting up their hands as they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. 
And then again, jump down to verse 8. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave sense so that the people understood the reading. How much more reformed can you get than making sure the word of God gets to the people of God? But as always happens, when the word of God is quenched, ignored, you get error. And the church, Old Testament Israel, keeps falling into error. There were many noble efforts, but all of them are incomplete. It has to do with the sins of man, but it also has to do with the perfect plan of God. Because we fast forward to the pivot point of all history, the coming of the Lord Jesus. The coming of the Lord Jesus is far, far more than the reform of a church. The coming of the Lord Jesus has to do with accomplishing all that's needed for salvation and fulfillment of the kingdom. So think of that first. It has to do with the saving of souls, the glory of God, the saving of souls, and the advancement of the kingdom. But think about how much of Jesus' ministry had to do with the church of the day. How far the leadership had gone afield from the truth of Scripture. Corrupt leaders, corrupt worship, misuse of the sacred, adding to the word, taking away from the word. That was the fundamental problem. They messed with the word, and so, so the church, so to speak, had gone wrong. Again, a faithful remnant looking for Messiah, God-fearing people, but the church was a mess. And Jesus regularly had to point to the errors of the leadership. Because while they thought that they knew the scriptures, they did not understand the scriptures, and they kept the truth from the people. And the church changed dramatically. Even with the church, it wasn't a simple reform. It was a dramatic change in the church, a radical change. The Old Testament system, as the writer of Hebrews says, was obsolete by design. And now God's people would worship in spirit and in truth. But still, worship, true worship, would always be based on what Scripture has to say about true worship. And the understanding of salvation would go back to what Scripture has to say about salvation. And so we see the solas all throughout Scripture. And you see that when they're ignored, that's when trouble comes in. When they're embraced, that's when the gospel light shines to people who need to see it and hear it and respond to it. You look at the letters of Paul and the other letters, the solas are woven into it. I guess I should say the solas, let me correct myself, are extracted from it. Bible is the authority. 
comes to the church. The truth comes to the church first, to the Jew first, the Old Testament church, and then to the Gentiles who needed to hear the gospel from the church. The church had to get it right. Well, now let's fast forward to church history, to what's called the Protestant Reformation. This has to do with a protest, Protestant, against the corruptions and the misleading of the Roman Catholic Church. And the Reformation was intended to reform or transform, bring back to the truth that massive institution. The irony is that in our understanding of the terms, the original reformers were not Protestants. They were Roman Catholics. And they saw the error in what was going on in the church. And their idea of reformation wasn't to start a new church, and it certainly wasn't intended to get them kicked out of the church. It was to take that institution that held the truth within its hands, but had defiled it so terribly. And so the reformers saw a transformation within the Roman Catholic Church. There was a faithful remnant. What started to happen before Luther were a number of individuals trying to get back to the core of the truth of the word and trying to get the word into the people's languages so they could hear and understand and believe. And so God was building this faithful remnant and setting things up, by the way, sovereign over all history, dealing with politics, dealing with technology, setting up this thing we call the Reformation all along. And then this man, Luther, comes along. And it's through the word of God that God gets Luther's attention. Not only for him personally, finally understanding that all the things that he was trying to do to save himself and win favor with God was worthless, filthy rags, that he could only be saved by grace through faith alone, through the merits of Jesus Christ. But he also looked at the church. And he recognized that the church was a miserable, was in a miserable condition, terribly corrupted. And so he simply writes down 95 points that he thinks might be helpful to reform the church. And he posts it publicly. And before he knows that all these issues that had to do with the church, 95 of them became very popular. They're not the solas. They're not are five points of Calvinism, but they're statements mostly against the corruptions of the church. But it's that moment that we say is October 31st, 1517, 
that sparked the Reformation. And the Reformation started to spread as the word of God began to resurface, so to speak, began to be translated into the languages that the people could speak. They heard the word and could believe and be set free by the gospel. So I don't want to be novel here, but I would suggest that it failed in a sense as a protest and it failed as a reformation, but it phenomenally succeeded as a massive revival because that's what reform brought. It brought salvation to souls. It began within the church, a refining, a reformation, so to speak, within that core of God's remnant that spread the gospel, spreading revival, capturing hearts. The Reformation took on different forms throughout history. One of the things that happened in the Reformation was there was no longer a monolithic church. And we begin to see denominations pop up and we see independent churches pop up and we we see all this reform then division then reform then more division between these protestant denominations the key factor that connects all true protestant churches is the authority of the word of god i say all true because that's the rub, that's where churches still go wrong. And so we ask ourselves, is Reformation still necessary? Is Reformation necessary in the modern church? Simply say, look around you. Look around us in America. You see denominations, numerous denominations, many non-denominational churches who don't, do not hold to the authority of God's word. Many do, thank the Lord, but many don't. We find the church in a sad state with all the freedom we have. There's still a great need for reformation, and reformation is ongoing. Denominations need it. It may refine. It may divide. Churches need it. It may refine. It may divide. Local churches need it. Ask Covenant Church, do we need reformation? We always need to look at ourselves. We always need to confess our sins. We need to always examine ourselves. Say, well, how can, how can a church sin? It's hard enough to think of ourselves as sinners, and I guess we do, we need to, and we'll get to that in a minute when I close, but how can a church sin? Well, a church can certainly commit many sins in history. Local churches and denominations even have committed sins of commission, doing things that God says expressly not to do, all kinds of ungodly stuff, embracing bigotry, Embracing perversion. Sins of omission, not speaking the plain truth. 
of the word of God and not bringing the gospel to the lost. We need to make sure that we are in right standing with God. It's an ongoing process. We've not arrived. I suppose we won't arrive till the kingdom comes in fullness. But since when do we stop striving to reform? Well, then we come to personal reform. We can only go so far in reforming our doctrine. And as long as we understand that it's the whole counsel of God in Scripture, while we may dispute over some issues, we can be sure that in the fundamentals we have the absolute truth of everything we need to know to glorify God, to understand faith, and to understand how to live for him. The rub is for us, do we know how to live it? And are we willing to reform our ways when we see that we are personally amiss? And are we ready to really apply the things that we believe? Well, just like the church, we will be continually reforming until we step into glory. Then we'll finally get it right. So I'll close with this. Reform always has to do, if we're talking about true reform, always has to do with prayer and the word and the work of the Holy Spirit. Reformation will always involve revelation from God's word, repentance, return to him, a refining of the church, and will result in revival. And will have a residual impact on society. But Reformation never ends. But we can look forward to a day when that won't be an issue anymore. When the king comes fully in his glory and he takes all his people to himself. That's a day we look forward to. In the meantime, we strive. We strive to be the church and to be people that God has designed us to be and has in fact commanded us to be. Let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the power of your word. And you've given us your word, the whole counsel that we need, everything we need for your glory, for faith, and for life. And we see in your word many examples that you've given to us for our good, examples of how horribly your people can go astray, even in the face of your wonderful grace and goodness. But Lord, we've also seen that reform can truly take place when your spirit works, when your word is upheld, when you raise up leaders and individuals that will embrace the truth and proclaim it and not shrink back. We thank you that we have that in your scriptures. We thank you that we have seen that throughout history. But help us to remember that the work is not done. And you're refining your church. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand that there's still work to be done. Help us to examine ourselves as a body of Christ right here. 
And as for us as individuals, Lord, we pray that where we have sinned against you by omitting things you've commanded us to do and committing things that you've commanded us not to do, that we would bow before your throne of grace and by the work of your spirit that you would reform us, renew us, revive us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.